to the inaugural episode of Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. This podcast series features Barry Dunn healthcare practice group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights and experience relative to contemporary, as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. I'm Regina Alexander, Director of Independent Review Organization Services. I'm joined by healthcare practice group principal and compliance expert, Sue Pryor. In this episode, we're focusing on the significance of resource allocation and risk assessment to overall compliance program effectiveness. Before we get into the discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations engaging Barry Dunn for independent review organization, revenue integrity, government program compliance, and credentialing support services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for CMS, the HHS OCR, the HHS OIG, DOJ, or any other government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. The DOJ released an updated version of their Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs memo in June 2020, right at the height of COVID restrictions, and when many hospitals and health systems had understandably put routine administrative functions, including non-urgent compliance program activities on the back burner. The headlines regarding the memo's applicability in healthcare focused on the emphasis on effectiveness, including the caution, quote, even a well-designed compliance program may be unsuccessful in practice if implementation is lax, under-resourced, or otherwise ineffective. The DOJ memo emphasized that an effective risk-based compliance program devotes appropriate attention and resources to high-risk activities, even if it ultimately fails to prevent an infraction. And the memo further explained, an organization with an effective compliance program has identified, assessed, and defined its risk profile, as well as devoted quote, appropriate scrutiny and resources to the spectrum of risks. At Barry Dunn, we frequently advise and collaborate with healthcare organizations at different stages of maturity in their compliance journey. Given the inopportune timing of the DOJ memo release, yet crucial points regarding the connection of risk assessment and resourcing to an effective compliance program, we thought our inaugural podcast episode was a great opportunity to revisit this topic. Sue, we could probably do an entire episode or 10 just discussing our credentials, expertise, and the winding career paths that led us both to the field of compliance and revenue integrity, but we do want our listeners to stick with us to the end. So briefly, Sue, what brought you to compliance and what keeps you engaged in the profession? Thank you, Regina. So I actually fell into it. I'm curious by nature. If you ask anyone who has worked with me, they will tell you that my favorite phrase is help me to understand. And I truly take that to heart. Early in my healthcare career, I got involved in data mining, creating reports, monitoring trends, seeking to understand the data and the outliers and the reasons behind those outliers 
drew me down the path of revenue integrity and compliance. As a compliance professional over the years, I continue to find satisfaction in collaborating with our clients to seek ways to operationalize compliance and really define the organizational risk tolerance. I think that's absolutely critical to having an effective compliance plan. Brevity is not always your strong suit, Regina, as we learned from that lengthy introduction. <laughs> but I think it's germane to our topic and your approach that you frequently share with colleagues through LinkedIn, clients, that you disliked compliance generally and most compliance professionals in a particular way prior to joining our ranks. Why was that? Oh, goodness, Sue, it's true. Fair or not, prior to transitioning to focusing on compliance, from my perspective, as a hospital operational department leader, first in the laboratory and then later in health information management, was that compliance didn't understand or try to understand my day-to-day -day reality and definitely didn't seem to understand the resource constraints I was working under. Worse, it seemed I only heard from the compliance officer when there was an issue or a complaint. Also, scary stories of what might happen the fallback of some compliance pros we know to obtain cooperation just doesn't work for me. I found my experience and perspective was all too common among my operational, especially my revenue cycle leadership peers, which in retrospect probably made the situation worse. Compliance was often the voice of no or slowing down what we thought we needed to do. So they weren't invited to the table unless we needed something. And then we had to explain everything and the cycle continued. What I didn't realize back then, but I'm certainly aware of now, based on my experience working with clients across the continuum of care, as well as with payers and vendors, is that most compliance officers actually do want a seat at the table, want to understand, and also that their departments aren't typically flush with resources either, imagine that. Sue. So, Lack of resources is frequently cited and always sounds like a vague reason or excuse when it comes to compliance programs generally. And we usually default to thinking of, quote, resources as a euphemism for budgets and finance. But what does resources really include? Great question, Regina. Budgets and funding are always a concern, particularly in organizations that don't have a strong culture of compliance. There can be a paralyzing effect when the perception is that there's just so much to do. A risk-based approach can be really helpful in focusing the dollars that may be needed in an organization. Also understanding the type of resources that are needed, what skill sets are needed, how many resources are needed, and where can you find them? While the perception of a vendor relationship typically is that that can be incredibly costly, the right partner can really provide value in the depth of expertise, particularly when your organization has a wide variety of services that they offer. During COVID, that brought a whole nother challenge into the compliance arena. The regulations were relaxing, tightening, changing, and then we've got the whole work from home issue and everything that goes along with that. Really paying attention to the resourcing becomes absolutely critical. Staffing is another constraint. Understanding the expertise that you need to have. How do you make sure that folks are trained and they've got everything that they need in terms of the tools in their tool belt? Internal stakeholder buy-in, however, is absolutely critical. 
achieving a sustainable balance for each of the resource types is continually, a cha is continually challenging for most compliance officers and certainly for the healthcare organization clients we typically support. So Sue, I'm hearing you say that in the long run, a compliance program requires a balance of resources, time, treasure, and buy-in. In other words, two out of three ain't bad is arguably a great song, but it sounds like the refrain doesn't apply to compliance programs. An effective program won't be sustained or effective without all three types of resources. But that said, and recognizing we live in the real world, Sue, in your opinion, which of the three elements is a complete showstopper? Meaning you have the other two elements, but the lack of the other undermines the entire program. Great point, Regina. Completely stakeholder buy-in. It's absolutely critical. You can find funding and resources, but you can't find buy-in. You can't go off the shelf and change your organization's workflow. You must cultivate it. It must become living and breathing within your organization. It must be nurtured. Remember, compliance should become a habit. And unfortunately, as many of us who have gone through an exercise journey understand that that is something that you must do again and again and again to become a habit. The risk assessment can really help an organization to hone in on stakeholder buy-in and really cultivate that for the future. Great point, Sue. Internal stakeholder buy-in, including middle and upper management commitment, was addressed at length in Section 2A of the DOJ's June 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance memo I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. So assuming your organization's program has stakeholder and leadership buy-in and a respectable allocation of funds and staff, the other factor in the equation, as you've been mentioning, is risk. So a compliance risk assessment is different than risk management. Compliance risk is the measure of an organization's potential exposure to legal penalties, monetary fines, reputational damages, and other losses caused by a failure to act in accordance with government regulations, laws, or even prescribed best practices, frankly. At the most basic level, an assessment involves evaluating an organization's likelihood of exposure and severity of penalties to common and organization or specialty specific risks. An example of an increasingly common new risk that wasn't on many organizations radar until the last several years is ransomware. Conversely, HIPAA privacy is a great example of a risk that has become part of the scenery. Yet we frequently encounter clients missing the very basics of HIPAA compliance. We definitely have seen that. How many times do we go to a client's website and there's no notice of privacy practices posted? So Regina, what are some telltale signs that you've seen that an organization hasn't performed a risk assessment? Or to be kinder, it's been a really long time. And we try to be kind, right? Um, so I'm going to put the scenarios um, and the characteristics in two buckets. Uh, the first scenario or bucket we're going to talk about is the healthcare organization that has a compliance program that appears, at least from the outside, to be reasonably resourced or has the potential to be resourced because they have identified the need for a gap assessment or compliance effectiveness review 
um, characteristics of organizations I put into scenario one, um, and these may all or only one apply. There is a compliance plan, yay, but it hasn't been revised in three years or more. The healthcare regulatory landscape is just too complex to go longer than three years without at the least assessing whether the risks addressed in the plan are current. Uh, another hallmark in this scenario, the resources the compliance function has are devoted overwhelmingly to low risk items or to the risks of the past. Uh, think of this as overpicking low hanging fruit or taking the path of least resistance. Stakeholders don't have any trouble buying in to the risks that they're familiar with. The other feature in this scenario, um, policies and procedures are present. Uh, we do encounter sometimes they aren't um, in some compliance programs, but in this scenario, they are present. They've checked the box, but the policies and procedure documents are stale or they don't reflect actual current practice in the organization. Another feature, the compliance officer isn't involved or recognizes a stakeholder in some activities we'd expect, such as revenue integrity and payer audit response. Um, sounds like what I used to do, keeping them away from the table when I was an <laughs> operational leader, right? Um, we just, we didn't want the, the no-sayer there. So, so that's, you know, that happens. Um, or, you know, this seems like a great situation. The compliance department is like busy and popular, all things to all people, answering questions. They're involved in many operational activities, um, but they don't have a proactive work plan. So they're just reacting day to day. Yeah, it certainly sounds like some of the places that we've seen where, you know, rather than teaching a man to fish, they're giving them a fish. And that certainly can be a challenge. So it sounds like in scenario one, a risk assessment would really aid this particular organization in providing the structure and prioritization of those resources that they actually have. In these cases, performing a risk assessment can make the program even more effective. Scenario two? Oh, boy. Right. So you, you got it, Sue. Scenario one, basic elements of a compliance program appear to be present, but a lack of risk assessment, recent or at all ever, um, and the prioritization of resources makes the compliance program less effective. Scenario two, I differentiate that by the lack of one or more basic elements of a compliance program that we'd recognize. Um, frequently in, in this situation, the compliance officer role or title is tacked onto an operational leader's role, and the individual has no specific interest or expertise in compliance. That's the people that wear four or five hats at a time. <laughs> right. Doesn't mean they're bad folks, but it's the organization hasn't prioritized that and it's added on to an already busy, busy job. Um, there's an absence of a compliance plan altogether and or a compliance hotline. Um, and there may be an absence of some of the most fundamental policies and procedures you'd expect for those perennial risks we talk about. You know, HIPAA privacy is not going away. Um, that's the kind of that's the kind of thing we're talking about in scenario two. Then we get to the resources of the no or conditional stakeholder buy-in. They only buy in when it's easy or when something bad is happening. Um, even perennial and well-known risk areas are minimally addressed, as I mentioned, in policies and procedures. And again, as you mentioned, with notice of privacy practices, something that's been around, oh boy, almost two decades now, it feels like. Um, it's just not there. 
And then the last uh, hallmark of the scenario two is there's a lack of expertise and awareness or not wanting to know in a strange way. I call it the chicken little, the sky is falling. Also, everything is a risk. So we're all paralyzed. And if we can't do all of it, what's the point in doing any of it? Um, so those are some hallmarks of scenario two that um, are important. And sometimes organizations don't want to see themselves in that position. But when they come to us, they do realize they have one or more of those things going on. So it can, it can all be fixed. So obviously, both scenarios that I outlined are more nuanced than I'm describing and have elements that will take more than just a, a compliance risk assessment to solve. Based on your experience, though, Sue, if a listener to this podcast episode hears a ring of truth regarding their organization's compliance program in either scenario, what are your tips to getting started on the path to effectiveness? Acknowledge them. Understand where you are. Doing nothing is a choice. Keeping the status quo is a choice. Start doing something. Even baby steps will lead to bigger steps. Think back to the habits that we were just talking about. It's got to become just absolutely innate within the organization that compliance is something that the organization is dedicated to. Sometimes the easiest way to begin is to understand the overall risk tolerance of an organization. No organization is ever going to be 100% compliant. Absolutely impossible. But talk about risk and ask lots and lots, and I mean really lots of questions. Let's go back to what brought me into compliance in the very beginning. Help me to understand that curious nature, not accusing the business owners of doing things incorrectly, but really encouraging them to talk about what they're trying to achieve and finding ways that fit within the risk parameters of the organization. How does your organization define risk? How do you define compliance? You gave us a great summary in the beginning, Regina, of how those sorts of things interplay but are definitely separate. Something to pay attention to and to educate everyone within your organization, your board, your business owners, everyone to really understand where those nuances are. Look at tools that your business owners have when they're setting up programs at the onset. That way they can be set up in a compliant manner, not just how they heard from a friend, this is how we provide this service, or that they go in that where we used to work, this is what we did. Really engage them in conversation and understand all of those risks. That way you get a seat at the table and have an effective compliance plan. So it sounds like as we wrap up our inaugural episode, there's a few key points that we're going to want our listeners to take away. Um, there has to be a balance of resources against your organization's specific risks, really, to have a chance at effectiveness. Um, and that whether it's time, treasure, or stakeholder buy-in, resources will always be limited. Doing nothing, not much, or overpicking low-hanging fruit sounds like it's easy. But making a conscious business decision to redirect limited resources to higher likelihood, higher severity risks is hard, but it sounds like you're saying, Sue, it's necessary. Absolutely. Thanks, Sue. Time certainly flies whenever we get together to discuss topics we're passionate about, and we've reached the conclusion of our discussion today. 
On behalf of myself and Sue, we thank you for listening to the first episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights, Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. We welcome listener questions and feedback about the ideas we discussed in this episode, as well as suggestions for topics we should consider when developing future episodes.